quarterly prayer meeting is coming up this Tuesday night, and we would love for you to attend. Uh, one of the best things about the new year is resolutions and a resolve to do things differently, and one of the things that we could all resolve to be better at is prayer. And so this prayer meeting, we're actually going to look at people in the Bible that were what we would call people who knew how to pray, and we're going to say that we want to pray like those people, people like David, people like Paul and Jesus, people like Abraham. And we're going to look at the things that they prayed for, and then we're going to have prayers for us as a congregation to pray for those things to happen as well. And so we would really be blessed if you would come, and you would be blessed too. And that will be this Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock here in the auditorium. And please be making plans to attend this Tuesday evening. Have you ever gone out of town and realized you need to find a place to worship? Uh, you ever have any luck finding a place only to get there and realize it's not the place you need to be at? Uh, you think you found a good congregation and then you walk in. My dad says years ago when he was at Fried Hardeman, he had gone with a friend and they said, well, we, you know, we believe different things. I'll take you to your congregation and then I'll go and we'll come back and pick you up afterwards. And he said, okay, it's before the time of cell phones. And so my dad walks into the auditorium and he hears the piano playing and he sees the band that's up on stage and he realizes I'm not where I need to be. But he thought, based on the name, that he could come into the building and worship and be able to please God in that fashion. In fact, I had Chuck and Amy ask me, and I, I looked and looked, and I couldn't find anything local, and I didn't have any contacts come up. They even said, you know of a congregation in the area where we're at? And I, I couldn't find one. And so there's definitely a need to know where places are, where churches are that you can worship, because it's such an important thing. What if you walk into a congregation and you were to see them sitting in the front row, those from the first century, and you were to ask them, you know, what are you doing here today? Well, we're looking for a home congregation. We'd like to see if this would be a good fit for us. What would they be looking for? I think if you go with me today to Acts chapter 2, this is going to be a sermon for this week and for next week that we'll look at together. But in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verses 42 through 46 for today, and we'll look at verse 47 next week, we can find qualities that the first century Christians would have looked for if they went church shopping, so to speak. Things that they would want to recognize. And so the question I want us to ask ourselves in the new year is would they recognize us? Would they recognize us? Would they come into the front row and come into this auditorium and say, you know what, after the worship service is over, this is where we want to be. This is where we want to worship. Would they recognize us? I want you to first look with me and ask, would they recognize our steadfastness? Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. The first century church, after they became Christians, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. If this first century church were to walk in today, would they, after a few days of being with us and after seeing our bulletin boards and seeing our bulletins that we give to the congregation every, every Sunday, would they see that we're a congregation that continues steadfastly in the doctrine that the apostles preached? 
in fellowship with one another, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Let's define steadfastness together for a moment here. According to New Oxford Dictionary, it's the quality of being resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering. But the Bible Dictionary, uh, let's see here, Chad Brand, according to steadfastness in the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, defines it as the following. It's a word meaning to endure patiently. A steadfast person is one who is reliable, faithful, true to the end. Paul said Jesus was a person of steadfastness in Romans 15, 3 through 5. The NASB translates steadfastness with perseverance in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 4. James would tell us that trials work about steadfastness or patience in James 1 and verse 3. Now let's talk about their steadfastness for a moment. Because if they were going to come in and judge our congregation based on what they were used to doing, their steadfastness is incredible to consider. If they were to come into this church this morning, into this assembly, they would be amazed at multiple different things for sure. Technology's advancement they would be amazed at. Perhaps the fact, as I mentioned Wednesday night, that we actually have a building to worship in and we don't have to go house to house. But I think something that would amaze them the most is what's sitting in most everyone's lap right now. Your Bible. I've made this point multiple times, but it just really, in my mind, cannot be overstated. How incredible it is to live in a time where literally in front of me right now, I have 40 or 50 Bibles because I have my tablet, I've got my phone, and I've got my actual Bible that I use on a regular basis. And I can open up numerous versions of God's Word and study them if I so chose to do. And most of them were free to download. There are Bible version apps that are out there to where you can read through the Bible in a year and it will read to you. Stop and think about that for a minute. When I went through preaching school, that's what I would do. I would walk around the apartment cleaning up stuff, folding laundry, doing whatever else I needed to do with headphones in, listening to the version of the Bible that the school had given to me and listening to the texts that we were going to be studying the next day or the texts that we had just studied that day. And somebody read to me. You think they'd feel blessed to live in a time like this with that at their fingertips? But what did they have back then? Acts 2 tells us they had the apostles' doctrine. They had the doctrine that the apostles would preach. And you remember Jesus told the apostles, I'm going to send the comforter to you. In John 14 and John 16, he says, This comforter, we know it to be the Holy Spirit, will guide you, the apostles, into all truth. Meaning that whatever you say is what God in heaven wants you to tell the people about Christianity and about spiritual living. And so when these first century Christians would sit at the feet of the apostles, they would not just be hearing some of the good, some of the good speakers, they'd be hearing some of the best sermons they could be hearing because God himself is speaking through the Holy Spirit to these apostles, guiding them into all truth, helping them help the church grow into what it was expected to be. But they steadfastly continued in that. Now, don't overlook that word patient. Patiently. Do you think they heard some things that they were not used to hearing? Wouldn't you think? Stop for a moment, go back just a few verses up, and read as we discuss this. 
about the day of Pentecost. Here is Peter and the other apostles preaching a sermon about what needs to be done to be saved, and these people are not yet Christians. There were really, as far as I can tell, two forms of religion that would have been predominant in that time. You would have had that of paganism, that which would be unacceptable to God, the type of religion that wouldn't be pleasing, idolatry, anything that is resolved in not something God has authorized. But then you also have Judaism, which was God's plan for the people in the old law. And there were people on the day of Pentecost that were very likely rooted in both. Rooted in Judaism, that they had always lived following the old law. Maybe even some were rooted in paganism where they'd never heard about God. They'd never listened to what God told them to do. They never followed the plan that the Bible, the Old Testament law, had set for them to follow. And what Peter and the other apostles tell them to do on the day of Pentecost is, leave everything as you know it and come follow Christ. That takes steadfastness. That takes patience. Because when you leave what you've always known, you're going to immediately, when you hear things that go against what you've always known, kind of buck up to it. Because it's just the way we are. We hear something the way we've always heard it to be, and then we're told, no, it's not that way anymore. You know how I know this is true? I still will say, Pluto has always been a planet. It's never not been a planet in my mind because guess what? I was raised, told the entire time, Pluto's a planet. Pluto. So when they removed it from being a planet, I was like, that's eh, still a planet in my mind. It's what I'd always known. I bucked up against it. But then there are times where you and I look at something and we realize, you know what, man, I, I have not been right. And I've got to change. The burden falls on me when I realize I'm wrong to change. And that day, the day of Pentecost, the people had believed that they were wrong. They'd heard that they were wrong. They were pricked in the heart and they decided, you know what? We're going to do something about this. What should we do, Peter? Peter tells them essentially to leave all that you've ever known and come follow Christ. Leave everything as you knew it and come live this way. And they did it. 3,000 of them at least. And not only did they do that, they then, the very next verse we read about these Christians is that the first thing that we're told they were steadfast in keeping was the Word of God. Can that be said of this congregation of every single member of it? Because that's what was said of them. It wasn't just that some of the people were on fire for God. All of them were. It wasn't just that they were on fire for God when they would assemble. They were always on fire for God. Were they perfect? No. But were they on fire for the Lord and wanting to know what he wanted them to do and how he wanted them to live? Yes. And they, you could see it in your mind if you just picture it for a moment. Picture the sermons that the apostles would be preaching and the people just sitting there wanting more, wanting to know everything that they possibly could hear. And when something might trip them up, patiently going through it being willing to steadfastly continue in the doctrine of the apostles, but not just the doctrine of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Christianity is not just about the Bible and what it says, but about doing what it says.
Many people in the world have copies of this book, and many people of the world will even tell you that they know a lot about this book. And after discussion with some of them, you can prove that. They know the verses. They know what the Bible teaches, but they're not actually willing to follow it. They're just half in. That's not what these Christians were. The fellowship, breaking of bread, they took the Lord's Supper. They prayed together steadfastly. What is the importance of steadfastness? They didn't go beyond what the Lord wanted them to do, and they didn't stop short of what the Lord wanted them to do. I'm guilty of both, though. I have at times gone too far with certain things and at times not gone far enough. And I'm not talking about biblically necessarily. Did you ever do a job and you didn't do it completely? You ever have that happen? Maybe you were younger and your parents told you to clean your room and you just decided, you know what, uh, I'll clean it, but not very well. I'll clean my room, but not as well as I could. So I'm going to shove things in here and I'm going to put things under the bed and I'm going to make sure that it looks clean. And I did that a lot growing up. And you would think I would have wised up at some point and realized my dad was smart enough to know me that I would have done that. Because every time he told me to clean my room and I would do that, and I'd come out 10 minutes later and say it's done, he wanted to inspect it. And wouldn't you know, the first places he looked were in the closet and under the bed. Because he knew. He knew I wasn't really going to clean. And he knew I couldn't have really cleaned it in 10 minutes. Didn't you ever go too far? Uh, I'm really guilty about this with gift giving. Uh, I will many times go way more than I should giving gifts. And we've had to put strict rules between my wife and I that we will not go above a certain dollar limit. And then I find myself in the store looking at an item that I know she'd like going, you know, I could spend this and buy it for her and tell her that we really need it and that I wanted to give it for her, but it's really for the house. And that's a, that's a way to work around that. Sometimes I just go too far. There's a balance. There's not doing the job enough, and there's overdoing it to where it's unacceptable. These Christians were balanced, not going too far to the left or to the right. You hear today a lot about politics they're the left and the right, but we're to be balanced. Conservative, yes, but balanced. That's what they were. That's why steadfastness is so important. You know what happens when people don't steadfastly do what they did? They're like the soils that are talked about in Luke 8, verses 12 through 14, after Jesus has given the parable of the sower. And he says, some of the soil, man, it was good soil. And the seed that hit that soil, it grew. But some soil, by the wayside, you know, the, the devil came and he choked the word of God out from them. And they didn't continue to grow. The ones on the rock, they hear the word of God. They receive it with joy. They're so excited. You've seen this, right? Someone becomes a Christian. They're baptized. They get out of that watery grave, and we never see them again. What happened? 
They received the word with joy, but they've got no root. They believe for a little while, and then they fall away in a time of temptation. The ones that fell among thorns, oh, those, those people still exist today. They've heard, they go out, they're choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. They want to really buy into what God tells them to do, but they're not willing to cut off the world. And they get choked by it. Because they're not steadfastly doing what they're supposed to do. They're not all in. We need to be all in. If the first century church came to visit us today, would they recognize our steadfastness? What about secondly, would they recognize our fear? If you look at Acts 2 and verse 43, the Bible says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The New Oxford Dictionary describes fear as an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. It's also a mixed feeling of dread and reverence. Bible Dictionary, according to Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, describes it as a natural emotional response to a perceived threat to one's security or general welfare. It ranges in degree of intensity from a sense of anxiety or worry to one of utter terror. It can be a useful emotion when it leads to appropriate caution or measures that would guard one's welfare. On the other hand, fear can be a hindrance to the enjoyment of life if it is induced by the delusion or if it lingers and overpowers other more positive emotions such as love and joy, perhaps leading to an inability to engage in the normal activity of life. But in the Bible, however, it is perhaps more often fear that is popular than in culture, regarded as not a pure emotion, but wise behavior. You know, if you study what we call the wisdom literature books of the Bible, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, among the few, You'll find these things said about fear. Job in Job 28, 28 says, To the man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. In Psalms, in Psalms 33 and verse 18, it says, Behold the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Psalm 36 and verse 1 says, An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 103 and verse 17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. In the book of Proverbs, you have Proverbs 1 and verse 7 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 8 and verse 13, it says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 9 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27 says, In the fear of the Lord there is a strong confidence, and his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. What is interesting about these new converts is how exactly this fear came to be. According to F.C. De Palma, who wrote for World Video Bible School on the book of Acts, the apostles were performing great wondrous works, miracles, miraculous power. And they performed these miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus had promised and sent to them. And the effect of the miracles was to create fear in the hearts of those who saw or heard about them. 
So obviously, when people observed or heard about true biblical miracles, they knew that those who worked them were performed through the power of the Almighty God. You know, Thayer's definition of this word, if you look at the Greek word for fear, phobos, Thayer's definition, I think, is really interesting when you couple it with Ephesians 5 and verse 32 and 33. Thayer gives two definitions. One, which is the standard definition we gave, but the second one is reverence for one's husband. Stop and think about that for a moment. Reverence for one's husband. What does Ephesians 5 talk about? Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, beginning in verse 25. But we get down to verse 32 and 33, and he says, look, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so he says in verse 33, nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as, his, as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You know what the word there in verse 33 in the Greek is? from the same word we get phobos, fear, reverence. What is the bride of Christ? The church. And we are to revere, respect our husband, Jesus. And respect is that we bow down to that authority and obey that authority. Godly fear is not a problem. It's a solution. The importance of fear when you study it and when I study it is that it keeps us alive in many cases. Remember we talked about Proverbs 14, 27, that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. What will fearing God help me with in eternity? Staying away from hell. If I fear what God can do, I'll serve him. I'll bow to him. These first century Christians feared the Lord. They respected the Lord. It's very similar to the mindset what Ephesians it tells the children to do, to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. In verse 3 it says that it may be well with you and you'll live long on the earth. If I listen to my parents, if my son listens to me, he'll have a much better chance at living a long life than if he doesn't. Fear, respect, reverence. Would they recognize that about us? What about number three? Would they recognize our hospitality? You know, the passage in Acts 2, 44 and 45 says, All who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Hospitality. They were an ultimate example of it. They sold their possessions. They sold the things that they owned to make sure that someone had their needs met and were taken care of. I mentioned not too long ago of the family, the week before Christmas, that their house burned. And when I was speaking with the man, trying to figure out what needs they had and how we could help in any way possible, he said, you know, honestly, there, there's not a whole lot we need at the moment. I know that will come down the road, but I've just been so overwhelmed with how people have rallied for us. Hospitality. 
Here's a family that has probably just lost everything. And people are rallying to try to help them in any way. And the first century church was no different. The impression that I get when I read this is that someone could have walked into the assembly like James describes, not necessarily in the best of clothes. And the first century church, the very beginning of the church, they didn't think about what this person didn't have and that they weren't worthy to be a part of worship. They started to ask, what could we do to help them out? This person looks like they need some new sandals. Why don't we sell our possessions and make sure that they get a pair? This person looks like they, they really need some clothes. Why don't we help them get there? Oh, he needs a place to stay. Let's give them a place. You know, it's the same thing we try to do today. But it's not just the church's responsibility to be hospitable. You notice it doesn't say that the church elders decided what hospitality would be given to these people. Notice the personal nature of this verse. They all sold their possessions and divided amongst people as they had need. Which means it didn't take the elders to stand up and say, we've decided to give this money. The congregation itself was trying to give before the elders could even speak, it seems. That the congregation's mentality was, we've got a way to fix this. Let's all pitch in and help. I can sell this. I can sell that. I can help in any way possible to give what is needed. Would they recognize that about us? Or would they possibly think that maybe we've become complacent and just depend on the elders to decide what hospitality is given out? I'm not saying that we're not hospitable. I'm not saying that we're not steadfast, that we don't have fear as a whole. But is it possible today that there are people in this auditorium who don't possess these qualities that need them? Is it possible that even you and me, who are Christians, who love the Lord, could wake up one day and find ourselves needing these qualities again? Would they recognize us? You know what happened because of their hospitality, right? Church grew. People heard, hey, this is a place that they're so kind, they're so concerned with others' needs. They don't care about themselves. They care about what you might need that other people, when the gospel was preached to them, they came as much as they could. Daily people were being added to the Lord's body. When was the last time we could say that about our congregation? When was the last time the church as a whole could say that in this country? For the Clarence was right. We live in a sin-sick generation, in a sin-sick world, in a sin-sick country. And the devil wants nothing more than for you and me to be caught up in politics, social media, and all the cares of this world and forget about the true meaning of life. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. This is what makes man whole. Solomon, what were you searching for? Something to make me feel like my life was worth living. Did you find it in all the stuff? No. You know what I finally found it in? God. And doing what God tells me to do. Then my life had meaning. 
The same is true for me. The church can grow if we become a picture of what they were. Finally, would they recognize our gladness and simplicity of heart? If you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, Continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Gladness. To be pleased or delighted, causing happiness. Thayer defines it as an exultation of extreme joy. What's the importance of gladness? Why should we be glad today? There's so much that we need, it seems, as a congregation as a whole. If we were to sit down and take the time, I bet we could all come up with things that we wish we had going a little bit better for us, wouldn't we? And maybe some of us are blessed, but there's still something that maybe we just wish could be a little different. Why do we need to be glad? Remember my dad did a gospel meeting here not too long ago, and he talked about rejoice in the Lord always. What does that mean? Do I really have the ability to rejoice when the doctor tells me that it's malignant? Do I really have the ability to rejoice when the doctor tells me we've got the news back and it, it's not necessarily the news we were hoping you're never going to walk again? where your body is going to begin to deteriorate, your mind will go, your body will go, and soon you'll need help of all your loved ones. Can I really rejoice then? Can I rejoice when I stand at the grave of my loved one and know that all the things that they're going to miss, there's no way they can ever be a part of it? Yeah. Yeah. You know why? Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 for a moment. This is so important, we can't miss it. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20, where Paul is writing to those at Colossae and he tells them, by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. It was sin that separated us, Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, Habakkuk 1, 13, and what can bring us back to the relationship we once had? What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it was him, Jesus, who did this. We stand at that open grave as redeemed members of the body of Christ. We sit on those doctor's tables in the doctor's office, in the operating room, in the office of the doctor, hearing that news as redeemed members of the body of Christ. And this life isn't it. There's something else. It's that time of year where playoffs and all of that thing are happening and teams are losing. And I heard this morning on the radio someone say, I don't know how many more chances we're going to have to win. Everybody's window's closing. And in a sense, they're right. One day they won't pick up a ball anymore. They won't play a game in front of millions of people. Their career will end but their life won't. There's a life after sports. There's a life after death. This is not it. So why do we think we have to live that way? We should be glad this is not it. I want you to look at this excerpt with me from Dan Winkler's book on grace. 
Mercy plus love plus kindness equals grace. Amazing grace. God's grace. He feels with us. Mercy. He wants what's best for us. Love. He gently cares for us. Kindness. Grace is God's devotion to man. And we do not deserve to have a God devoted to us. We have been redeemed though. So we need to live like it. To be glad. We don't need to look like we're sucking on a lemon. Our sins have been forgiven. Can we smile more? Can we tell others about the good news? Or will we continue to act mentality-wise like the world and get so caught up in all of the death, decay, and torment that we never forget, or that we forget, I should say, to sing and be happy, to praise the God who redeemed us? If I die tomorrow, I will have lived a good life. There will be a lot I missed out on, sure. But I'm redeemed. And I'm ready to meet him. Are you? Are you glad? Do you have that simplicity of heart that is an idea behind of saying, we're not going to be in love with the material things of this world? That's what that meant. With simplicity of heart. But you don't have all of the latest stuff. We don't need all of the latest stuff. But you're not as well off as that person over there. No, they're not as well off as we are. Because they're not a Christian. Howard Stern, Bill Gates, all of the millionaires in the world, some of the most famous and rich people in the world will die one day. And if they die without the gospel, it doesn't matter how much more money they've had than us. We're richer. It doesn't matter that people knew their name over us. God knows my name. God knows your name. But would the first century church walk into this auditorium and see a group of people that truly believes that? That truly sits there and says, you know what? I don't care about this life. I care about my Lord and I'm going to please Him first. Doesn't mean we can't have nice things. But is Jesus enough for us to where if it had been my house that burned down and I would never live in a house like that again, I'd have to live in a small apartment the rest of my life, would Jesus be enough? Would it be enough if I lost all of my material possessions, all of my money? Would he be enough? That's what simplicity of heart really means is that they didn't need all of the other stuff. Because they had Jesus. Brethren, we stand here today, we sit here today, having Jesus. And that's enough. I don't need anything more. And I need that reminder. You don't need anything more. He's enough. So what if they walked into our congregation this morning? And they worshiped with us. They came back and they were around for a while enough to really and truly see what the Somerville Church of Christ is really about. Because I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know better than anybody, we're not a perfect church. 
We've got issues. We've got things that we have to work through. And even if we work through our issues, you know what's going to happen because people are people? We'll get more issues that will come our way. But how do we respond to them? First century church had issues that come up too. Would they walk away after being around and really and truly seeing us and say, you know what? I'm going to tell others that's where you can go and find Jesus. Or would they walk away going, we look for another congregation that will hold up the standard of the Bible, the standard of God, and live for Him the correct way to be steadfast, to fear, to be hospitable, to be glad about what we've been given, and to have the mindset that, you know what? I don't have to have anything more than what He's already given me today. If I never gained another possession in my life, would I be content? Would you be content? Would they recognize us? And if they wouldn't, it's time that they do. You can come to be a member of this congregation this morning, and not just this congregation, but you can be a member of the family of God by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. That's what these people did in Acts chapter 2. And that's what we have to do today. But what happens if we realize today, you know what? I'm not what I need to be. I'm not what I once was. Come back. Come home. Repent and pray. And God will restore you just as the day you came out of the watery grave. <clears throat> to be recognizable by not just those in this room, but by those out there that we are different that we are set apart, that we are redeemed. And we're going to heaven and we want to bring them with us. Whatever need you have this morning, won't you please come while together we stand and sing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode on the Scattered Abroad Network. We are grateful for your continued support as well as your continued prayers. If you would like to find out more about our network, please visit our website at scatteredabroad.org. We look forward to studying with you again soon. May God bless you.